You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the host of this show, Dodging Pollen as Best I Can. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Nayan Chanda about the historical forces at play in globalization. Coffee was also um, developed in, in uh, Ethiopia, but it's ultimately it was Yemen where it really gained ground. And it was because of the Muslim uh, priests, the imams, who started drinking coffee to stay up late night to pray. So again, coffee too developed and spread uh, mainly as a, a to prayer, and it was known initially as the Islamic wine. Harold Cook about how the growing international trading power of the Dutch Republic in the 16th and 17th century led to advancements in medicine and science. So these various trading companies that were competing with one another in the Dutch world get, are forced into one company in 1602, and that company is run by a, go, uh, a board of governors of 17 men, uh, and they have sovereign rights to uh, uh, anything they want to do uh, east of the Cape of Good Hope. So basically, this is a trading company, a merchant company, but it has sovereign rights. That means it can make treaties, it can wage war, uh, it can exterminate people if it wants to, which it did on occasion. And Alan Klein about how Major League Baseball is reaching out to an international audience. Major League Baseball has a kind of a schizophrenic uh, response to, to uh, the present, its present condition. On the one hand, it, it, there's tremendous economic success, uh, attendance, revenue is at an all-time high, ratings are excellent. But in the structural sense, the game is at a, in a crisis in, in two particular ways. One, it can no longer reproduce its own player base domestically, that is within North America, and particularly the United States. And secondly, it can't reproduce its own fan base domestically. Stay tuned. Globalization, outsourcing, the growing economic divide between the wealthy and the poor, these are just three issues that have been playing out in national governments and international organizations in the last two decades. In his book, Bound Together, How Traders, Preachers, Adventurers, and Warriors Shaped Globalization, Nayan Chanda takes a step back to look at the long-term historical forces that have shaped our current debates on globalization and its effects. Nayan Chand is the director of publications at the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization and the editor of Yale Global Online. He's the former editor of the Far East Economic Review and the Asian Wall Street Journal Weekly. Nayan Chand, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. Why did you want to write a book on globalization? Well, um, globalization has been, um, since the early 90s, a very, very uh, used in fact, overused term, and yet what it actually means is remain very mysterious. People define it in a way they want, and it has become a very contested world. So I thought one way of looking at globalization is actually to see if it is a process. When did this process begin, and who were the actors who brought about this process? So that's just trying to get grips with the idea of globalization and looking at it as a historical process, to me, looked like the best approach uh, to understand this word that has been used so often. 
Well, one of the ways the book is organized is along four classes that you follow throughout uh, history, traders, preachers, adventurers, and warriors, and how they affected the globalization throughout time. Of those four classes, which one's influence surprised you the most as you did your research? You know, I was uh, most surprised by my research on the role of preachers. I started with the assumption that preachers, basically, they led to the spread of their faith uh, to the world from the from the northern indian plains where buddhism emerged to to japan and uh, central asia and southeast asia and christianity all over the world islam throughout southeast asia and india but what i had not expected uh, before i started doing the research is how deeply it has affected uh, life all over the world for people who may not belong to any of this faith. So this is the most uh, surprising discovery for me as I did the research. For instance, the fact that tea is uh, drunk all over the world now, especially China is is the tea-drinking nation, but the tea-drinking was made popular by Buddhist priests because they started drinking tea in the 7th century in order to stay up late night to pray. And so it was a prayer aid. And that, as Buddhism spread in China, so did the idea of drinking tea. Similarly, coffee. Coffee was also um, developed in in, uh, Ethiopia, but ultimately it was Yemen where it really gained ground. And it was because of the Muslim... Uh, priests, the imams who started drinking coffee to stay up late night to pray. So again, coffee too developed and spread uh, mainly as a, a to prayer, and it was known initially as the Islamic wine. And then look at uh, the uh, wine. Christian missionaries could not have communion without red wine. So they brought uh, grape plants, and they planted grapes and developed wine. So whether it was Lipiro Serra in uh, San Diego or the Huguenot priests coming to South Africa, uh, they brought with them grapes and started wine. So we have now lovely South African wine or Californian wine thanks to the priests. How important was Islam in the development of a global culture? It was extremely important because Islam, um, you know, ever since Muhammad um, led his army to conquer uh, most of Arabia, and then the successor caliphates, and then obviously Ottoman Empire, spread the Islamic faith uh, uh, from the from Spain in the west to uh, Southeast Asia in the east. This huge Islamic uh, ummah or Islamic community uh, became a big, big uh, sort of uh, transmission belt for ideas, cultures, uh, and uh, food and drinks. And most importantly, perhaps, is that since Arabic was thought to be the God's language, and Quran could be read only in Arabic, so local languages often sort of disappeared in favor of Arabic, or most of the 
um, literature found in countries controlled by the Islamic rulers were translated into Arabic. The result was that many of the classic Greek classic were translated into Arabic, and those Arabic texts have survived, but not the original Greek texts. So if we can read Aristotle and Plato today, it is thanks to the Arabic translation of those texts. So this has been a major contribution, and so was the contribution in terms of mathematics. The Arab mathematician Al-Khwarizmi, for instance, wrote this book on algebra, which was translated by a British translator who found the book in manuscript in a library in Spain. And the translation was called Dixit Algorithmi. It was a mis, uh, mis uh, transcription of Al-Khwarizmi's name in, in Latin. And there hence came the word algorithm. So algorithm, again, is a contribution of Arab mathematician called Al-Khwarizmi. Within the book, there are uh, different commodities that you take a look at as kind of a, an historical uh, throughout history to see how they affected globalization. So I was wondering if you could give listeners a sense of how the development of cotton really plays into the same idea of the idea of globalization. Yes, cotton was first um, domesticated and grown in India some 3,000 years ago, and Indians learned how to make thread from cotton and how to weave the cotton into cloth and then and then dye it. And so the Indian cotton textile was the most important manufactured export in the world until uh, 18th century. Only the arrival of the British um, colonial rulers and the British Industrial Revolution, which learned how to use power of water and, and steam to actually run machines and weave cloths at a much cheaper pr- price. Uh, cotton textile was India's monopoly. And then that monopoly went off to Britain, and in the process, Indian weavers uh, died by the thousands because they lost their livelihood. And in the meanwhile, with the arrival of British colonists in America and the Use and American cotton were found to be much superior to Indian cotton, and development of cotton with the help of uh, Eli Whitney's cotton ginning machine, which enabled to process cotton much faster. So cotton growing took off in America, eclipsing India completely. And only when there was a civil war in America and cotton exports were interrupted, then Egypt and India again were used to grow cotton for the British textile mills. So cotton has linked the economies of the world in a way that perhaps no other commodity has in the industrial sense. And then American industrialists basically copied the technology from Britain and set up the first textile mills in northeast of the country. And American textile mills actually dominated the world, uh, eclipsing the British, until the arising, rise of uh, China and Southeast Asia as a low-cost producer of textile started affecting in the American textile industry, which started moving south from from North in, from New England to south of the country, and eventually completely out of the country. So what we see today in terms of America's 
um, industrial workforce, especially textile, um, is suffering as a result of the uh, transfer of textile industry to China and uh, and basically China and India. Uh, it is a, in some ways it's a kind of complete uh, completing of the cycle that began uh, some 3,000 years ago with Indians going textile and ex- exporting to the world. Bound Together, How Traders, Preachers, Adventurers, and Warriors Shaped Globalization is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Nayan Chanda, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. From 1500 to 1700, the Dutch Republic was transformed from a collection of small provinces into one of the great maritime trading empires of the modern era. In Matters of Exchange, Commerce, Medicine, and Science in the Dutch Golden Age, Harold Cook writes about how this economic transformation was the driving force in revolutionizing the study of natural history. Harold Cook is the director of the Wellcome Trust Center for the History of Medicine and professor at University College London. Hal Cook, thank you for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. You spent 20 years writing Matters of Exchange. What kept you going all that time? Uh, well, uh, a number of things, but most importantly, um, I was discovering all kinds of new information that I had uh, never known about uh, before, being raised in the English-speaking world, and uh, it was overturning many of my expectations. So it was, uh, it, it was really um, keeping me uh, very interested. What sort of expectations was it overturning? Well, um, one of the expectations that it overturned was that um, I grew up uh, studying uh, the history of uh, Tudor Stuart England first, and uh, many of the arguments there were about the importance of uh, Puritanism for advancing um, various developments, uh, modernizing more or less the uh, country. And uh, what I was finding in the Netherlands was that uh, uh, quite often the... Um, most radical uh, religious thinkers of whatever stripe were making life difficult for the people that I was uh, most sympathetic to. And those would be the natural historians, the scientists? Yeah, uh, people we would today call scientists. Uh, uh, Most of them uh, were people uh, trained in medicine um, because uh, medicine was the only uh, advanced university subject in the day. So if uh, you wanted to uh, combine both uh, working with nature and writing and reading about it, uh, studying it in the way we would now call science. Um, usually, you were trained at the university, and usually um, you had an advanced training in medicine. Early on in the book, we talk about how this period of Dutch history saw the beginning of the idea of objectivity. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, there's been lots of debate about what objectivity means, and uh, uh, those debates are very interesting. But what I came to think of uh, the subject as being about was uh, the study of objects, so that objectivity relates to objects. And objects are uh, uh, what people were describing very carefully, and they cared very much about the detail of these objects, so that uh, getting things precise, getting them exactly correct, and uh, debating about whether uh, something was correctly described or not, uh, ascertaining whether it was correctly described or not, was very, very important to uh, uh, people in uh, the early modern period. And that wasn't only natural historians. That You tie that into the commercial aspect of the Dutch Republic as well. 
That's right. I I think that uh, one of the things that interests me is the, is how uh, what's called natural philosophy, uh, um, a kind of uh, philosophy that's uh, oriented towards thinking about nature, how that changed from what might be called the late Middle Ages to the modern period. And one of the things that happens is that uh, once upon a time, uh, philosophers were interested in uh, understanding the uh, premises of uh, arguments uh, that were laid down by uh, natural law, which, of course, had its origin in God, and therefore um, they could uh, reason out the causes of things. I think that one of the things that's happening in the early modern period during the Dutch Golden Age uh, is that people begin to say that uh, getting the natural details correct is very important. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that uh, the values of the country in general were uh, changing so that people were quite interested in uh, material objects. Uh, This is where wealth was, and that's where people were interested in in, uh, uh, matters of consumption, so that... uh, um, it was the material details of nature that were interesting everyone, and uh, the so-called natural philosophers began to get very interested in the um, natural details as well. A lot of people in the English-speaking world might not have a background into some of the historical things that were happening in the Dutch Republic during this time, but something that people might have heard of was the tulip bubble in Holland. And you talk a little bit about that in the book and how it's an example of both the uh, commercial side and the naturalist side of how things are developing in Holland during this period. I wonder if you could give us kind of a brief synopsis of the tulip bubble and what it has to do with your book. Sure. Uh, The tulip bubble was um, something that occurred in... uh, the 1630s, and for uh, a few decades before that, tulips had become more and more valued uh, among um, garden fanciers. And garden fanciers uh, were uh, originally people of the uh, elite, but more and more people, um, uh, ordinary people, could invest in tulip bulbs and grow them in their gardens. So uh, as interest in tulips spread, uh, people began to um, speculate in uh, bulbs. And the tulip bulbs are material objects, and they could be bought and sold. They could be uh, stored up uh, for long periods of time. They could be weighed and assessed and otherwise um, uh, judged like many other kinds of commodities. But they also uh, then will breed true from the bulb. And so you could count down something uh, being um, like it was last year. People could assess the kind of flower that would uh, grow from year to year. And um, at the same time, um, the flowers were, uh, you know, it came in a great variety. So uh, some of them were streaked and uh, considered to be especially valuable. So basically people could um, um, trade in commodities that had to do with uh, an assessment of beauty. And uh, some flowers were considered quite spectacular. Others were not. Obviously, uh, the prices of uh, some were much higher than others. Um, and every, But everybody could get involved, involved in either the most expensive kinds or the cheaper kinds, and they could uh, invest um, in various ways, such as buying futures on a commodity exchange. Um, at one point, however, um, in the middle of the 1630s, uh, one of the big auctions for tulip bulbs uh, came to nothing, 
uh, after a week before, uh, another um, set of tulip bulbs had sold for extravagant prices. So basically the market collapsed, and uh, it took a long time for um, some of the people who had been invested in tulips to uh, recover their finances. Another thing that people who have studied English history probably know about was the British East India Company, which ran India for the British crown more or less from, say, the 1600s through the, the, really the 1800s. But in your book, you talk about the Dutch East India Company. And I got a sense from the book that the Dutch, the Dutch East India Company was an incredibly powerful organization. What was it, and how powerful was it? Uh, the Dutch East India Company was founded in 1602 from a number of uh, trading companies that had already been um, uh, setting up ventures to Asia to seek out the source of the uh, spices that uh, everyone in Europe uh, was after. Uh, people consumed uh, nutmeg, uh, clove, uh, pepper, cinnamon, and other spices in very large quantities and wanted more of them. And the Dutch felt that if they could get to the source of the spices, they could uh, undercut the Portuguese and uh, the Asian traders um, and make a lot of money, which they consequently did. But one of the things they uh, learned to do was to band together. So these various trading companies that were competing with one another in the Dutch world get are forced into one company in 1602. And that company is run by a, go- uh, a board of governors of 17 men, uh, and they have sovereign rights to uh, uh, anything they want to do uh, east of the Cape of Good Hope. So basically, this is a trading company, a merchant company, but it has sovereign rights. That means it can make treaties, it can wage war, uh, it can exterminate people if it wants to, which it did on occasion. Um, So it's a very powerful uh, company um, set up to exploit um, natural resources for the consumption of people in Europe, and it became extremely uh, wealthy, uh, uh, but also very powerful for a period of time. Matters of Exchange, Commerce, Medicine, and Science in the Dutch Golden Age is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Harold Cook, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. Baseball is known as the American national pastime, but recent shifts in the demographic and ethnographic makeup of its fan base have led to shifts in how Major League Baseball sells its product and recruits new players. In his book, Growing the Game, the globalization of Major League Baseball, Alan Klein looks at the growing internationalization of the game, from its players to its fans. Alan Klein is professor of sociology and anthropology at Northeastern University. His book, Sugar Ball, The American Game, The Dominican Dream, was published by Yale University Press in 1991. Professor Alan Klein, thank you so much for being on the Yale Press podcast today. In Growing the Game, you outline how Major League Baseball is trying to expand the global awareness of the game. What are some of the reasons why Major League Baseball is putting capital into globalization? Major League Baseball has a kind of a schizophrenic uh, response to to uh, the present its present condition. On the one hand, it has tremendous economic success, uh, attendance, revenue is at an all-time high, ratings are excellent. But in the structural sense, the game is at a in a crisis in in two particular ways. One, it can no longer reproduce its own player base domestically, that is within North America, and particularly the United States. And secondly, it can't reproduce its own fan base domestically. The average fan looks more like uh, like me, a middle-aged man, than it does like uh, a 10 or 11-year-old, and that's critical. And in terms of the player base, well, it's 
there's a lot of material out now. Clearly, we've lost the African-American athlete. And uh, since about 2000, over 300 little leagues have folded. And um, that's just the tip of the iceberg there. The kids aren't playing the game. There are too many options. So given those two structural issues and crises, um, its only rational response is to develop a global kind of persona. Now, in the book, you talk about an office within Major League Baseball called Major League Baseball International. Uh, what is their function? Anything, this is something that's really evolved in the last six or seven years. Beginning roughly at about 2000, uh, Commissioner Selig began to centralize control over the game, uh, given the green light by the owners. And, and since that time, anything that occurs outside the United States, any games, any kind of televising or broadcasting of events, any uh, licensing kinds of arrangements, all that is now under the umbrella organization uh, of Major League Baseball International, which is a division within MLB. And they, uh, you know, whereas previously the San Diego Padres could play games in Mexico if they decided to, or, um, you know, possibly broadcast into Mexico, that can, that's no longer allowable under the new rules. So anything that op- that goes beyond the confines of the United States is in, uh, is in that division. Now they also categorize countries, if I if I remember correctly. Well, that's that's not really uh, a hard and fast kind of thing. It's sort of a heuristic device that some of the people in MLBI have developed. Jim Small and Paul Archie refer to countries as tier one tier two and tier three countries tier one countries are the most developed uh, baseball countries uh, today in in uh, in the newspaper i saw that he, that there were uh, eight countries that have already been uh, invited to the new world baseball classic that's that's coming up and they're the eight most developed countries countries that almost any baseball fan could pick uh Mexico, Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, Japan, and uh, and those countries are really advanced. They have, they develop a lot of professional players for MLB, and uh, not only the player side of it, but also MLBI looks at the business side of it. So the division tier one countries have either an advanced uh, possibility for conducting business or generating revenue, or they could be. So the DR, the Dominican Republic, for example, is a kind of a, an iffy one because clearly it's the most advanced player development country in the world. But as a third world country, it lags behind countries like Japan and even Mexico for the business side of it, um, although things have uh, increased there as well. So it's a combination of player and uh, revenue producing uh, possibilities or actualities, depending on how you look at it. And Tier 2 countries produce slightly fewer uh, players. So, example, for example, Taiwan or Korea would be perceived of as a Tier 2 country. They produce Major League ball players, not, but nowhere near with the frequency that, of, a, of a Venezuela. And uh, there, too, the, the revenue-developing de- sector is slightly less than in the Tier 1 country. But clearly, they are on the board. Tier three countries, I think, personally, are the most interesting because they have no uh, real baseball 
development whatsoever. They're seen as long-term prospects. So classically, Europe, really most of the world, actually, if you want to look at it, Europe, Africa, most parts of Asia, and even most parts of Latin America are Tier 3. So in my book, I looked at South Africa and I looked at three uh, Western European countries. Uh, there, they produce almost n- uh, never have produced a player, or maybe occasionally. The Dutch produce some someone occasionally. Uh, the Italians really not, and and uh, business-wise, also nothing much has gone on. What's important about this, and it's not something MLBI is really keying in on, I think, is that that's the sector that's the most sensitive to survival in the 21st century for Major League Baseball. They're they're putting all their eggs in the tier one and a little bit in the tier two categories uh, because they're already successful, but. For MLB to survive the 21st century, it'll have to be Tier 3 that gets developed. I was interested in how you talked about how baseball is tied into the political conscience of post-apartheid South Africa, because there is this question of what baseball is to people who haven't played it before compared to the other sports, because South Africa is very much a sporting nation. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. Um, It was quite interesting. I mean, uh, a couple of things happened. One is, uh, after... Uh, Mandela became the first president of post-apartheid South Africa. He, um, uh, a lot of the, uh, the the early mandates had to do with trying to find ways in which you uh, policy rather to, to integrate all sectors of society, including the sporting sector, so that it became a rule that forty percent of every uh, sporting uh, sector had to be. Uh, with people of color. So, you know, a classically black game like soccer or a classically white game like cricket, now these teams, national teams and others, had to be integrated. And uh, and so into this uh, steps uh, MLBI with their uh, with their early programs. They, they have these programs designed for young children called Pitch, Hit, and Run and Play Ball. And these are school programs, school-based programs. And... Um, where they've where they've had them in the past, they've been you know if they're successful, they get into several hundred uh, you know schools quickly and they become curriculum based and then leagues develop. But in South Africa, it was startling the rapidity with uh, by which these programs uh, just flourished throughout the country, so that uh, Edwin Bennett, who's the head of SABU or one of the heads of South African Baseball Union pointed out that it was, it's in over 1,500 schools, and that was within a matter of months. Now, the way that got into so many schools so quickly was that people like Edwin Bennett, uh, who were anti-apartheid activists in the earlier period, many of them were in some area of education, so that when baseball uh, enters the cultural stream of South African society, it was quickly spotted as a new sport, one that had no racial history. And so it was deemed uh, one of those uh, progressive sports that the government really wanted to encourage. So uh, it was very easy, once that was designated as uh, a new sport for the new South Africa, that the the anti-apartheid activists, just moved it through the system in a matter of months. The astounding number of schools have it. 
Growing the Game, the Globalization of Major League Baseball, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Alan Klein, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Yale University Press is pleased to announce that it is the recipient of a very significant gift from Cecile and Theodore Margellos for the establishment of an endowed fund to support a major new publishing series of foreign literatures in translation. The series, to be called the Cecile and Theodore Margellos World Republic of Letters, will be dedicated to making literary works from around the globe available in English through translation. The first five books signed in the series include Five Flavor Grove, by San Shui, one of the distinctive voices of contemporary Chinese fiction. The selected poems of Umberto Saba, a new verse translation of the great Italian poet's work. The selected poems of Adonis, a generous roundup of poems by the great Syrian-born poet and essayist. And the selected poems of the Greek poet Kiki di Mula. The Cecile and Theodore Margellos World Republic of Letter Series will identify works of cultural and artistic significance previously overlooked by translators and publishers canonical works of literature and philosophy needing new translations, as well as important contemporary authors whose work has not yet been translated into English. The series is designed to bring to the English-speaking world leading poets, novelists, essayists, philosophers, and playwrights from Europe, Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East to stimulate international discourse and creative exchange. Consulting editors will include Umberto Eco, Orhan Pamuk, Charles Simic, and Elie Wiesel, among others. Publications of the books will begin in Yale University Press's centenary year of 2008. The Yale University Press book sale continues apace. To get in on these great deals, just go to www.yalebooks.com, click on the half-off sale banner, and look for the book of your dreams that's 50% off. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, Dig, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you need comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast, which is ably engineered by Stephen Cray. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com Copyright 2007 Yale University Press All rights reserved